From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst, aka the FPNA Guy, and you are listening to FPNA Today. FPNA Today is brought to you by DataRails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FPNA. We will provide you with actionable advice about financial planning and analysis. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FPNA. I am thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show, Ben Murray. Ben, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for uh, carving out some time for us. We appreciate it. So a little bit about Ben. Ben comes from the Denver metro area. He runs the popular website, thesascfo.com. He has more than 20 years experience in finance and operational management. He has more than five years of experience as a software CFO. He got his MBA from the University of Iowa, and he's an actively licensed CPA. So we're really excited to have him on the show today. And maybe, Ben, you could start by just telling us a little bit about yourself and, and your background. Sure, sounds good. Yeah, my background, of course, been in finance and accounting my entire career, 25 plus years, was worked in the airline industry and then software industries pre-SAS. Uh, then became, you know, I came up through the ranks of FP&A, so it's near and dear to my heart, and then became a SaaS CFO for private equity-backed businesses and founder-backed businesses, and then launched my own services about a year and a half ago. Great. Sounds like it's been quite the, quite the journey. How is it making that transition from kind of the airline industry to SaaS? I imagine pretty big change. Yeah, huge change, right? Each you, you find each industry has their own terminology, language, acronyms, and, and airlines probably almost as bad as SaaS with all the terminology and acronyms. So, really interesting switch. You know, looking at you know the P and L differently, looking at metrics differently. So, yeah, I, I can imagine. I uh, you know worked in the travel industry, so dealt with some airline metrics and had lots of meetings with the different airlines around trying to help them, you know, maximize their revenue with us. So. A little experience there and definitely very different from SaaS and other industries. So, you know, you run the popular website, the SaaS CFO. Can you talk a little bit about the website? You know, what services you offer, what type of people it's for, like who should maybe check out your website and just share a little bit about it. Yeah, so I started the SASCFO.com about six years ago just to share my knowledge uh, around SAS finance, SAS metrics, templates. And I started because I started off as, uh, well, I had a stint as a programmer, a mainframe programmer. And I learned from the guys who are very experienced, you never started from scratch. They're always starting with this program, that program, and kind of the same thing in FPNA. You look at this model, that model. So I just wanted to share the templates that I've built and just really have actionable items that people could use right away, download right away, and implement you know, in their business or help their career. That makes a lot of sense. So you started that about six years ago and went out on your own about a year and a half ago? Yep. So went on out on my own about a year and a half ago and offering fractional CFO services to SaaS companies, uh, do some coaching, then also offer courses in SaaS finance and metrics. Got it. So coaching, courses, and then also being a fractional CFO. Yep. Yeah. Kind of like the three C's, kind of courses, content, yep, and consulting. Yeah. Those, those are the three C's I have. So I understand <laughs> yep. that one. So maybe can you talk a little bit about how, you know, SaaS businesses and the finance function, just kind of in general, how you've seen it evolve over the years? Yeah, SaaS, FP&A, you know, when I started in software, it was pre-SaaS, so early 2000s. 
You know, so we weren't looking at the metrics that we look at today. And really interesting thinking about back in those days. And, you know, really, you know, good PL management, good solid funnel, fundamental financial management, you know, good FPA process, variance analysis, looking at margins. But we weren't talking CAC, we weren't talking payback, uh, CAC ratio, all the terminology that we had today. So it was a bit more fundamental financial management working in software that, that has definitely transitioned, you know, and changed over time. That makes a lot of sense. Imagine when you started, it was all mostly just on-prem mm-hmm. type software, which is a very, it's a wholly different model than subscription, different metrics and... Yeah, it was, it was on-premise. And I still remember that that one of the assignments I got from my general manager when subscriptions started to become popular, maybe it wasn't hosted in the cloud on-premise subscriptions, but he came to me and said, hey, Ben, create uh, subscription pricing for this product. And I was in healthcare tech at the time. So I was like, okay, how the heck do I do that? Uh, but you know, it was just a different perspective view back then, of course, you know, and things have, have matured, you know, a lot since then, of course. Yeah, I bet that was quite the uh, challenge when you're like, okay, wh- what do I use to benchmark this? How do I come up with the numbers? Right. What are my recurring costs? You know, what are my margins for the subscription product? You know, and just thinking about that from scratch of what goes into the delivery of the product. You know, still remember sitting at my desk and playing with the numbers in, in Excel to try to figure out what would be a subscription price. And then we had to get this approved by the top uh, executive in the company. So, uh, of course, a good exercise. But yeah, started in those those on-premise, you know, perpetual license and, and maintenance days. Yeah. And what, I mean, what would you say were kind of the key lesson learned from that, from that project, from that experience? You know, the big thing is like how, right, you want to price it so you have enough margin. And back then, I don't think we were thinking about, hey, pure play SaaS, 80% gross margins. So it's really thinking about what goes into the delivery of this product. You know, who do we need? What technology do we need? So we don't underprice it. You know, with any pricing, right, you you learn and iterate over time. But I was trying to think about that cost structure. Who's involved? What's involved? You know, if we put this price out there, you know, that we can sufficiently cover our costs and have enough margin to pass on to OPEX. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, exactly. There was no 80% rule or all these different metrics you see today. It was really trying to understand those costs and think about, okay, what is... What's the bottom line number we need for this to make sense? Yep, yep. Got it. It makes a lot of sense. So I know you rose through the ranks of FP&A, as you mentioned, public companies, some airline industry and other things. You know, you have said you have experienced kind of all shapes and sizes of FP&A. So maybe what have you learned about, you know, best practice and bad practices in FP&A mm-hmm. and some of those lessons you've learned over the years? Yeah, like I said, I came up through the ranks of FP&A, so worked in FP&A at large public companies, private companies, was the first FP&A hire for some, or, you know, became, you know, led the organization for FP&A, you know, so you see all different types. When I worked, you know, in healthcare tech, that was at a big Fortune 20 company, and that, you know, was a great learning ground, you know, really mature FP&A processes, you know, strict closed timelines, you know, and we had this very set monthly calendar of close, run into the forecast, variances, meet with your general managers. So that was great training for me. In addition to when I started out in FP&A and airlines, I'd say kind of two training grounds in FP&A and one was in the airlines and one was at this healthcare tech company. And that really helped me learn the process of FP&A and what you need to do each month, you know, how to communicate, you know, what reports, you know, of course you learn over time as you move from analyst up, up the ranks. Uh, you know, so that was great. Just learning that 
framework, you know, because in FP&A, we have that strict, you know, routine each month that we follow. So that was great, you know, great learning grounds. No, it makes a lot of sense learning that routine. And was there any things you saw at the different companies that, you know, you took with you that you really saw as kind of best practice or maybe some things you saw over the years that just made no sense to you as you're working through different FP&A? Yeah, I think, you know, one, you know, there's this one company, we had the the dreaded budget memo, you know, so at, during budget season, all, you know, this huge analyst shop, we had to write, you know, a couple page budget memo that explained how the budget was changing year over year against that nine plus three forecast, which was our base and going through revenue, going through our gross margin profile, going through OpEx, right? And this was on the on-prem days, no SaaS, but still kind of that same framework I followed today. And that really tested our understanding of the business, our understanding of the numbers. Why are the numbers changing? So you could com- clearly communicate that performance you know, to the execs, to others in the organization. Tons of work, tons, tons of work, but really a good process and a really good learning process. You know, so you see things like that, you know, throughout your FP&A career, you know, of just how are they managing it? What's the structure? How do they look at a PL? You know, what are those important numbers that they, they're focused on each month? You know, so you just pick that up over time. And, you know, I think in other places where things don't go well is maybe there's an FP&A shop, but really it's not a finance-driven culture or FP&A is really not at that table. You know, when I was in the airline industry, Finance really drives airlines. Of course, among other departments, I'm a little biased, but really so financially disciplined, you know, that every project analysis came through the FP&A team. And so top down, right, finance is important. So everyone then, right, believe, you know, it's like, hey, finance is important. They have to be at the table. And where you see FP&A fail, I think you could have the proper frameworks, but then that culture at the top doesn't value the analytical side, the numbers and the discipline and decision-making that can come through the finance process. And then you're just less effective. No, that's a really good point. And I've seen that where when you don't have the seat at the table, when finance isn't looked at as a strategic partner, Mm -hmm. it's just a back office function that we have to deal with, so to speak. And I've been in companies and situations where that's the case. And yeah, I agree with you. It doesn't really matter how good your processes are if you don't have the seat at the table, you really can't drive value. Yeah. And I, you know, even, you know, I see that today with some of my coaching clients uh, in SaaS where, you know, working through the numbers, but still they're not following the budget. You know, they're not, you know, understand that we've got to stay within this framework because say our cash runway now has shortened, you know, our cash has tightened, the equity markets have tightened, you know, and we could be crunching those numbers, but still it's got to, you know, there's got to be alignment from the management team that this is important. No, I totally agree. If you don't have that alignment, it makes it really, really hard. And something you mentioned there is, you know, the runway shortening. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's been a big, big thing that's been talked about the last few months is, you know, the VC being tighter around the purse strings. You know, there's not as much funding going around. The valuations are coming down. You know, all those things that come with the fear of a recession, with the inflation, with everything we've seen the last few months. As some like to call it the end of the party. You know, as I like to think, capital is basically virtually free. And so you take more bets on companies. Now that it's more expensive, you're not willing to take those same bets you were. And we're seeing that. So maybe, you know, what advice would you have for finance teams and and FP&A to adapt to kind of this new reality that we're seeing where, you know, there's much more of a focus on balancing cost versus growth at any cost. And there's, you know, less equity going around, valuation, you see some down rounds and things like that. 
Yeah, it's really interesting because I think with the change in the equity markets and say tightening up of cash runways, you know, this is where I think CFO shine. And I say it's like financial discipline never goes out of style, right? So mm-hmm. whether we are in good times or bad times, that financial framework, that discipline still has to be in place. So we're prepared for times where it's harder to get funding. You know, maybe they're not funding as many new investments and, and reserving some capital for their ex- existing investments. You know, so that's where, you know, and we saw in the pandemic, just the, the importance of financial analysis that we're prepared, you know, to run scenarios, to understand where the company is going so we can be as proactive as possible. And, you know, and, and yeah, now it's about, hey, how long should, you know, let's make sure we know our numbers, what's working, what's not working, have a good cash forecast uh, so we can be more self-sustaining if needed. Uh, you know, and I work with SaaS companies in all different ranges where good cash flow, bad cash flow, great cash balances, lower cash balances. Uh, but in within all these, right, we still, you know, follow that same process that we're just not, you know, if we have tons of cash, we're just not ignoring a cash runway, right? We still have to understand the economics of our business. Yeah, no, it's a really good point of the importance of understanding the economics of business and how the framework, like you said, financial discipline should always be there. Unfortunately, you see a lot of leadership when things are good, kind of getting loose with the money. And then as soon as you see the, you know, the challenges coming, that choppy water, they tighten everything down. And I, I get it. Obviously, you got to be a little, little, little tighter during those certain times. But you know, if you're not careful, it comes back to bite you because you get they they want to get too loose with the money, and then it's like, oh wait, we're in trouble now. Yeah, but I've I've seen that with some companies where they they've built a nice SaaS business and and it's producing cash, positive margins, great cash flow, but really poor financial management because it was a winner out of the gate. You know, so they didn't have to focus. They knew the cash balance was increasing. We're good. We're just looking at our bank balance, some basic P&Ls, not doing forecasting metrics, you know, and you can get away with that, you know, but really right now, not the right approach. We still want to put in that framework to understand our business. You know, so yeah, you see all shapes and sizes. Yeah, no, I worked for a company, you know, that uh, when they brought in the new CEO, they sat down, they talked to everybody and said, you know, reason we made changes is we were spending more than a dollar for every dollar of growth we were having. It was quite profitable, spinning off plenty of cash, but obviously that was not what private private equity envisioned when they bought the company, right? They need to get a return, which spending more than a dollar to gain a dollar is giving nobody a return. Right, especially in the PE world where you're really tightening up the metrics, twisting all the dials that you can. And yeah, it's not, you know, too extreme or too nitpicking that, hey, our, our, you're referring to cost of ARR or the, the SAS-CAC ratio where, you know, yeah, we're looking at that. We're benchmarking it. Where is it going? Uh, because, yeah, we have to fund our operations from our own cash flow. You know, so we have to do the best that we can as we allocate capital within the business. So you've built out those with that metric set and now you're fine tuning. Yeah, no, I agree. It makes a lot of sense. We will be right back. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop, breathe. DataRails is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRails takes data from all your company's disparate sources. 
No organization is too complex. Consolidating everything into one place. Secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarails.com. And now let's get back to our episode. So speaking of FPNA and you know kind of VCs, private equity, those those back companies, what role does FPNA play? You know, working with either VCs or valuation, what have you typically seen? You know, is the role of FPNA in those those situations? Yeah, FPNA, you know, two roles here, and and one right where we're building out our financial profile internally, the metrics that are important, the right metrics at the right stage for our business. But it's twofold because we can use those to operate our business, those numbers, those metrics. But they're the same numbers that investors are going to look for. You know, whether it's the VC world, PE world, any investor coming into SaaS is going to want to know, you know, your margins, your margins by revenue stream, you know, your sales and marketing efficiency metrics, your bookings numbers. You know, so it's really twofold that FP&A, as we build out these metrics to manage our business, then we can also have intelligent conversations with our investors, our board, or potential investors on those same numbers. Makes a lot of sense. So are you seeing, do you feel like when you go into companies and you see all these companies that most companies are tracking all the SaaS metrics? Because I've seen some data that it seems like it's pretty spotty. And a lot of companies aren't really doing a good job. So what are you seeing in the companies you work with and just kind of in general in the industry for you know, tracking those SaaS metrics? Yeah, I'd say early stage, like if you're less than 10 million ARR, really, you're not seeing much. You know, we've got our, our QuickBooks or zero P&L and maybe trying to calculate some metrics, but really nothing there. The reporting structure is not in place. So you're really starting from scratch. Above 10 million, of course, it can still be all over the place, but really you should be able to start calculating those right metrics if you're enough uh, over 10 million. Because I say there has to be enough volume of data in your business to make these metrics meaningful. But early stage, we're building it out above, say, 10 million for sure. You should have a nice metrics framework in place, benchmarking your business. But you know, again, it comes in all shapes and sizes. Like I said before, this one comp- SaaS company is highly profitable, say 20 million, no SaaS metrics, no forecasts. You know, so it's not just a given, you know, if you've got some scale that you have, you know, a good FP&A process in place. Sure. What do you recommend companies under 10 million? Those are starting that ARR. What are those maybe key metrics that they should try to track? Because I know they're not going to be able to track all of them. They don't have the tools in place. But if there are maybe three or four things that they should be looking at in those early stages, what would those be? Yeah, and definitely there are a couple subsets within 10 million. This is something I teach in my course, like less than, say, like a SaaS company, less than a million, one to three million, you know, three to five and five to 10. Makes sense. I implement for my clients and teach in my course uh, this five pillar framework that's centered around growth, uh, retention, margins, your financial profile, and then sales and marketing efficiency. And it follows that pattern as well. So early on, it's about growth and retention. You know, if you're a couple million ARR, right, you're probably not calculating your CAC, pay, CAC payback period at 2 million ARR. You know, maybe you could, but it might be unreliable. But as you scale closer to 10, especially above five, what I see in that five to 10 range, 
we should be able to produce almost the entire metrics framework for that business. Of course, there are a lot of caveats to that, but early stage, right, growth, retention. So either through bookings, how many customers are you signing up, you know, new and existing business, and then retention, customer retention, gross dollar retention, net dollar retention, you're focusing on those, and then we progress the maturity as you scale. That makes a lot of sense. And question, do you see a big difference in what you should track and how you should think about things if it's a product-led SaaS company versus sales-led? Because I know there's a lot of discussion around that, and there definitely is some differences. Maybe talk a little to that. Yeah, you know, tons of talk, of course, product-led versus sales-led or doing both, one or the other. And, you know, what I see early stage is really, you know, there might not be much expansion yet because they just have one product out there, you know, whether it's sales-led or or product-led. You know, so we're more focused on new growth, new customer growth, the retention of those customers. And then as you mature, yeah, then maybe later on, you know, the the kind of the ambiguous areas, all right, product-led companies, all right, the R&D cost, you know, should some of that be allocated to sales and marketing expense, you know, and how to look at that and how to balance that. And I'd say that question is still up for debate, you know, of how you do that. But I think you do need to know as an FBA professional, you know, what's my sales motion? Your go-to-market motion dictates so much of how you look at your business and what metrics you're going to monitor, the pricing, the cost structure, you know, so I think the more you know about that sales motion, the better you can be in FP&A. No, I, and I would agree with that. I can say, you know, the most time I spent with sales was definitely when I was in a, a SaaS business. There's a lot of time really trying to dig deep and understand things. We had a lot of different products and we had field and inside and account management because of the type of, you know, nature of the business. So it was definitely, you know, really important to spend that time with sales. So, you know, as a CFO or even, you know, head of FP&A, is there maybe three to five, like in your experience, metrics that you would say are kind of key that you like to look at? Like if you're first coming in and evaluating a company, and I, I know it could change some depending on size and some of those things, but just say, you know, a typical company that's over 10 million. So they're relatively, you know, mature in the sense they may still be growing fast, but they've, you know, got some systems in place and they have the data. What do you typically like to look at? Yeah, see, if I'm coming in new or, you know, say new head of FP&A or CFO, one is, and it's same with my client base, is the accounting foundation. You're looking at the chart of accounts. How are we coding revenue? How are we coding expenses? Are we coding by cost center? Do we have RevRec in place? You know, so it starts with that accounting foundation, that review. Do we have enough detail there, you know, to have the analytics that we need downline? You know, and downline from there, it's the correct setup of your SaaS P&L. And that's such a common thing, whether you're 1 million or, or working with $50 million companies, you know, is that SaaS P&L, is that set up correctly? And starting with fundamental financial management, right? This distinct revenue streams, you know, is recurring separate from, say, our subscription separate from usage, professional services on its own line. You know, then looking at your delivery of revenue and COGS, you know, do you have support, uh, customer success, DevOps, uh, all the cost centers that you need to deliver on revenue, then OPEX, R&D, sales, marketing, G&A is pretty standard there. You know, looking at my margins, my gross margins, my revenue stream, my OPEX profile. And then from there, I transition into the metrics. All right, what metrics should we be calculating at this stage of the business? And say, if you're above 10 million, really, it should be your growth metrics, your retention, your margins, your financial profile, looking at the rule of 40, your OPEX profile, and then sales and marketing efficiency, of course, everyone's favorite, you know, looking at CAC, LTV, cost of ARR, CAC payback, magic number, 
uh, you know, an aggregate, and then maybe you're segmenting that by ICP or different demographics. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I like I said, starting with the chart of accounts, because if you don't have the systems and the chart of account and the the actuals right, it makes forecasting and everything else, analyzing and all that work near impossible. If you have, you know, fundamental flaws on that end, it's just, you're, you're, you're swimming upstream. Oh yeah. And I'm sure the analysts listening right now who are doing three statement models, like you've got, you know, you're capping R&D and that's like buried in your balance sheet or buried in GL accounts, right? And you're trying to set up your three statement model. It's like, oh my goodness, I don't have enough detail here. You go talk to accounting. We need these GL accounts. So yeah, for FP&A, for sure. And just the general financial management, yeah, starting with accounting and working your way out. Yeah, I'm laughing because I joined a company, you know, it was my first SaaS company where they just consolidated all their uh, accounting from, they were being run as individual portfolio companies into one central kind of going operational and had a shared service, brought, you know, 50 people in and companies on all different platforms. And I remember those very conversations, hey, we need accounts to be able to track how much time we're capitalizing. You can't just back it out of salaries. We have no idea, Mm -hmm. you know, what these numbers are and the percentages and so I, I was laughing because I've been there. I've had those exact conversations with the accountants of, look, this doesn't work. We can't track things this way. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Totally. I 100% agree with you that, that that makes sense of that structured approach of accounting, looking at the P&L, the financials, then going into those metrics, looking at each of the different departments, the efficiency and building out and understanding you know how the business is performing on those metrics. So. It's a great approach. Makes a lot of sense. So I know recently you wrote a you wrote a post on setting up an FP&A function in SaaS companies. Can can you maybe walk through what you know the key advice was? Maybe the highlights from the article. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I wrote that post, and that actually originated you know the kind of the concept when I was an in-house SaaS CFO, where sometimes right your executive team or leaders don't really know what's going on in finance and accounting. You know, they kind of have a general idea but not sure of all the details that go on. And then also talking to founders, you know, where they're trying to understand, hey, do I need an FP&A process yet? You know, and, and they don't have accounting, accounting's outsourced. And, you know, what kind of value does this FP&A initiative help? You know, how does this help my company? So I wrote the post, you know, just to provide some clarity to SaaS founders out there of how FP&A can be helpful and just in general about what we do. And I've been in a lot of FP&A departments somewhere. It's like, hey, Ben, come in, renovate this, revamp the FP&A department. And, you know, I'd focus on people, process, and technology, you know, because we're still very process-driven with an FP&A. You'll have to have a clean process each month. Uh, You know, the people side, the talent, the technical skills, you know, the communication skills, the training that you need on the people side. And then technology becoming a huge part of just finance and accounting in general. You know, it used to be, hey, maybe we have a forecasting solution and a general ledger. Now, you know, in my tech stack survey, I'm now surveying 13 different categories that apply to finance and accounting and expands every year. So, you know, then the fourth, you know, so that was kind of that three-legged stool of looking at that. How is our FP&A team functioning? You know, what are we doing? What do we need? And now added data to that. You know, it's like, oh my God, you know, data, it's like the same old thing, but still data very under-leveraged in our businesses. You know, that now CFOs have to become the data steward and really be involved and influence those tech decisions, data decisions, because now all the data is so co-mingled yeah, that FP&A is really using, right, using data you know, within the entire org 
And we do need to be involved in that process. So people process technology and data. And I look at that framework and what's working, what's not working. What do we have to improve in our department? Yeah, no, I, I like how you say that people process technology and, and data. Because sometimes people lump data in with technology and they really, you, you need to look at them together and alone. There's, you know, components where they obviously impact each other. But there are times when, you know, there's things you can do that have nothing to do with technology that fix your data. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. Yeah, definitely. All those data sources, whether we're using great technology for it or not, there's data in the org. And yeah, how do we how do we leverage that and bring it all together? Yeah. And, and, you know, another thing we've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of debate on LinkedIn and in companies, you know, the last company I worked with before I went out on my own, you know, they had had most of IT sitting under finance and they'd actually just pulled the data and analytics team under finance. What do you typically see in SaaS? Do you have a kind of a recommendation there of, you know, what level the CFO should get involved in data and, you know, structure that maybe works? Just kind of your general thoughts about that, because there's a lot of debate in that area these days. Yeah, you see two camps, right, where say IT reports up to the CFO and IT is that internal infrastructure, you know, the the networks, the security, your laptops, and, you know, and then those internal systems, you know, and you see that reporting up through finance, you know, sometimes once the org becomes big enough, it's its own silo that maybe reports to the CEO, you know, so you kind of see different org charts there. But I think regardless of the org chart, FP&A or the, uh, the CFO have to be involved in those decisions when it comes to internal systems, the data, because like I said, the data in SaaS is so commingled. You know, I work so closely with my CRM administrator, you know, those implementing things, you know, that data comes downline to your accounting team, mm-hmm. eventually comes downline to your FP&A department. And, you know, whether it reports to you or not, you do need to be at that table and influencing those decisions. No, I totally agree. Especially you mentioned like the CRM. Finance better be involved in that process because there's so much data, especially in a SaaS business that you get from your CRM. I mean, in many, many cases, almost as important as your accounting data. Yeah. And once you've done a CRM to accounting integration, you realize, oh my goodness, the the efficiency, the data there, how important that integration is, especially in SaaS. Yeah, I know that makes a lot of sense. So you know, can you share maybe an example of best practice FP&A you have seen, you know, working with SaaS companies, maybe a tangible action from FP&A that you know, demonstrably helped the business where you've seen FP&A really bring that value to the company? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think best practice FP&A really arounds, again, around that monthly close calendar. What are we offering? What are we doing? What's part of our delivery each month to, you know, those internal departments, maybe customers, but those internal stakeholders, you know, and obviously, you know, there's some pretty set stuff in FP&A. We do actual the budget or actual, you know, forecast, having the, the variance analysis, which, you know, I remember my first FP&A job, they typed up a cheat sheet of like, here's how you write variance explanations. And I'm sure someone listening also has seen that, but right, here's the order. Here's the, you know, the, we're using New Times Roman and all this stuff. Uh, you know, so I think it's that process of what we're trying to achieve and what's that, you know, and, and FP&A can take time. Maybe it's just doing some variance analysis to start with. Then we, you know, get the forecast process in place. Then we have the monthly financial review where FP&A leads that review with the executive team. You know, so it's, it's that process and what we're trying to achieve. 
And again, are you starting from scratch or are you trying to revamp an, an existing FP&A process? You know, so the, again, it's that, that framework that I follow the people, the people process data technology, you know, and, and understanding what we're trying to deliver, deliver timely, accurate each month. You know, and of course, you know, sometimes it doesn't go right. You get the forecast wrong, but it's, it's that looking at that deliverable each month you know, that, uh, you know, we are providing value in that and not just, you know, spinning our wheels producing reports. That's a good point. When you talk about process and you mentioned getting the forecast wrong, it made me uh, harken back to my first experience in SaaS. I had built the budget and I was, at the time, I was doing two roles. I was supporting the CFO for everything in the U.S. and they'd give me a business as we were trying to hire somebody. And I hadn't done it. I'd never done SaaS before. I was figuring it out. And we got the calendarization and we underestimated our churn. And the first month out of the gate, I think churn was like three times what we had forecasted. I'm like, there goes the budget for the year. We're not catching up. Because that cumulative impact of being that far off in 12 months, it was, we were done. And that was not fun to explain that one in month one. No, I think once you've been in FPNA long enough, there are those times where, yeah, you have to go and admit like, yeah, we really messed up this assumption, had a formula or something. Uh, because that's right, FPNA's worst nightmare that you, you do the budget and you're doing variances for that first fiscal month. Let's just say it's January and actual the budget is way off in a certain area and, you, and your heart drops. Like, oh my gosh, I forgot to add all contractors to the budget or whatever it might be, or got expansion wrong or churn, like you said. You know, so that's everybody's worst nightmare in FPA. You know, but again, it takes time. You know, if you're coming into an FPA role for the first time, you don't have that intuitive sense of the numbers. That builds over time, where then you can tighten up your forecast, you can tighten up your budget, where budget is within five percent, you know, for the revenue uh, for the year. Right, because you've got all those good inputs, especially for SaaS, you know, the new customer acquisition rates, you know, expansion numbers, downgrade numbers, churn numbers, reactivation numbers, all those layers of MRR that you need to produce an accurate revenue forecast, for example. That makes a lot of sense. And what advice, just kind of we were talking about a little bit, would you offer to somebody when they're in that experience where they all of a sudden look at the numbers, say, you know, in January and it's like, oh, oh crud, I forgot, you know, contractors or I messed up expansion or what, what advice would you give somebody when they're in that situation? Yeah. And I, you know, I've been there and, and I think, you know, one, when you notice that, you know, you have that moment of panic and then, you know, then it's, it's going to your, your boss and FPNA, whether that's your manager, director, whoever it might be, and just say, Hey, here, here's what happened, you know, and, and you just have to admit that because right, that's an important thing going forward in the process. And, you know, and maybe you have to live with that variance for the year. Maybe you, they'll let you fix it. Uh, but I think you you just got to own it and and see you know what are those next steps you know can we fix this or am I going to be explaining this all all year? No, I I, I totally agree. It might always the best way is to own it. I've seen people that try to find a way to cover it and it just it never ends well. Nor is it the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Boss is always going to be more understanding if you're just up front and say, hey, here's what happened. I own it. I made a mistake. Here's how I can you know here's proposals to fix it and move on. Yeah, we're all and human. I, Yep. And I think if you've been in FP&A long enough, that's, that's probably going to happen at some point. Oh, uh, yeah. I know. I've had, I've had plenty of them, more than I care to remember. But, and I agree with you. Anyone who spent a career in finance or FP&A, just career in general, you're going to make mistakes. Yep. And unfortunately, with budgets, when it's numbers, it, you know, it can be hard because, you know, that impacts so many downstream things that that panic sets in for sure. 
Yeah. So kind of talking about that, you know, we talked a little bit about just those, those type of failures, you know, I actually kind of funny, I think it was just yesterday, I wrote a post on LinkedIn talking about how failure really is an opportunity to learn. So do you have an experience maybe in your career where you've had a failure with an analysis, you know, with a budget and implementation that really taught you something that it was really a good learning experience for you in your career? Yeah, I think, you know, as far as those learning experiences, right, it's, you know, I think it starts out on the technical side, like the budget mistake, the forecast mistake, calculation errors. And right in your FP&A career early on, you're building those technical skills. You're learning the business, then you're learning how to communicate. You know, I think for me, uh, of course, everyone's going to have those technical errors, but really is learning that communication process. And really, if, if there was a failure, mistake, or learning thing on my part, it was on the communication side, you know, and constantly communicating. And also, you know, it's like communicating to your bosses, whoever that is, if it's the board, if it's the CEO, if it's the manager of FP&A, is always keeping them informed, you know, and learn that I could have done better in some areas along the way, you know, because we build the technical side and then, right, the real art is delivering that story. And also looking back at my career of just not voicing my opinion enough, you know, where it's like, hey, if I'm the director of FP&A, it's like they want to hear from me, right? And you you learn that over time, but you kind of look back and and say, yeah, I, you know, if I didn't get that CFO position, you know, because I just wasn't proactive enough. I didn't communicate enough. I didn't really, you know, push my seat at the table. That's some great advice about being proactive and sharing your opinions, especially FP&A. That's one of the things we're hired to do. And if we're quiet and just kind of in the background, then we're, we're forgotten about. You know, we don't, we don't have that seat at the table. So let's say somebody in FP&A, you know, they want to improve their communication. You know, as you talk about this key skill, obviously, what advice would you, would you offer to them? Obviously, there's tons of resources out there for the technical. I want to learn Excel. I want to learn the SAS metrics. I want to learn, you know, financial modeling. But, you know, you don't see as much talked about or focused on the communication side. So what advice would you offer to somebody who's looking to be a better communicator? Yeah, and that's, yeah, it's a hard one because you learn that a bit on the job. But I think one, it's like, you know, who's your audience, you know, and, and is it, yeah, that divisional manager who really doesn't have much of a background in, in finance, you know, when I was working in the airline industry and say supporting the, the tech ops division or the maintenance division, the mechanics, maybe they don't have that finance background and you've got to also educate, right? So who's that audience? Do I need to educate? Do I need to help? What do they need from me as an FP&A analyst, you know, for example? You know, so knowing your audience and also keeping it simple. I think where things go really bad, you know, whether you're a CFO or analyst, is where you confuse. You know, so keeping it simple, uh, because once you start confusing, it's over. You know, it's lost. That conversation is over or that presentation is over. Uh, you know, so I think FP&A is who, who's your audience? What are you trying to communicate? What numbers are important to them? You know, and, and also as we start out in career in FP&A, we're so in the weeds, right? We get into the details. We lose the big picture. We lose that macro view. And, you know, I, you'll learn this on the job, but, you, you know, just taking a step back, looking at the numbers from a high level, what's important? What do I want to communicate? Because, I think it's common with analysts you just get so into the weeds. You, you lose sight of what you're actually trying to do, say, with that analysis, that forecast, that number that you're trying to present. That's a great point. And I love the part where you said, you know, kind of stepping back and getting out from the weeds, because I know I've been there. And, it, it you know, it, the more you move up the ranks, the more you got to be able to speak strategically. 
and look at the big picture. You still may get into the details, but you have to learn how to communicate it at senior management's level. There's definitely an art to that. Oh, definitely. And how many you know, analysts and managers have gone to their boss and present that analysis and right away they point something out, right? They're thinking big picture and you're like, oh my goodness, how did I miss that? You know, so you, you just learn that in time and just having good feedback from from your from your your managers, you know, to improve as a, as an FP&A pro. Sure, no, it makes a lot of sense. So, kind of switching gears here, we have a few questions we like to ask everybody a little more on the you know kind of fun and personal side. So, the first one: What is something unique about you that you can share with our audience? Something they wouldn't find online. Yeah, I think, you know, I mentioned this earlier in the, in the show is, is actually I did a stint as a mainframe programmer. So I was a COBOL programmer, uh, you know, before grad school and, you know, it was really, I think really helped me in my career just to be able to manage large data sets. Uh, you know, and there was funny it was, this was late nineties where the, of course there was Y2K, but there was just a demand for COBOL skills to be able to program in mainframe, mm-hmm. the mainframe language because all that, that skill set was retiring. Uh, so did a little stint as a COBOL programmer before going to grad school. Yeah, no, it's definitely a different one, one you not you don't see a lot of. Mm-hmm. All right, so here, you know, DataRails is a uh, big fans of Excel. They're an FP&A platform for Excel. And one question we like to ask all our guests we have a little fun with is, what is your favorite Excel you know, formula, function, kind of feature, and why? Well, for anyone who's downloaded my templates, you know, I've got tons of VLOOKUPs in there, you know, so that's just a standard, you know, VLOOKUP, uh, you know, super functional. Of course, now we got the XLOOKUP, but uh, yeah, VLOOKUP, probably top of the charts, but, you know, in, in my process in, in Excel, it's it's tons of VLOOKUPs, some ifs, and index match uh, you'll, you'll find in my forecast models. You know, I think those three are probably three of the most common you'll find, those some ifs. Mm-hmm. Some kind of lookup, whether it's X lookup, V lookup, index match, whatever kind of lookup you're doing, and then maybe some if statements here and there, depending oh, yeah. on how you've built it. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Those are very, very common ones you see. So I think those are ones everybody likes. So here we have just, you know, kind of one final question for you before we let you go. So say someone was starting their career, and we'll say this specifically in SaaS FPNA. So, you know, they just barely started it, maybe fresh out of college. What advice would you offer to that person? What career advice would you give them? So, yeah, I mean, that was one big thing, you know, is the industry. So if you're just focused on SaaS, one, I think it's it's learning the language of SaaS, the terminology. You know, that's a big thing. Otherwise, you're going to get lost. You know, so that's, you know, understanding what's a booking, what's growth, what's retention, you know, what's payback, what's CAC. So you can understand because those are metrics that you're going to have to implement. So one is the language of SaaS. And then two, whether you're SaaS or not, is just those good technical skills of whether you're using Excel or Google Sheets. I'm an Excel guy, but you'll be able to have the technical skills to be able to manipulate data, you know, to give to be given unstructured data and to make something out of it. You know, that's the big thing in FPNA and that learning progression is that you then become a little bit self-sufficient in in the FPNA role. So you're not always seeking that that help out from your boss. You know, so the technical side, uh, but then just learning the, the terminology, uh, the metrics that are going to be applicable in, in your process. That's a lot of great advice. I love the, you know, particularly for SaaS is learning the terminology, learn the metrics. And then just in general is learning how to deal with big data sets, learning how to work with data, boil it down and synthesize it, find trends and bring, bring those insights to the business and recommendations. 
Because, yeah, it takes time to learn how to work with data. And, you know, the data sets, as you know, as I think everybody knows, are only getting bigger. And that's not going to change anytime in the future. No, definitely not. Well, thank you for joining us today, Ben. We really enjoyed having you on the show. If our audience wants to learn more about you, what would where would you recommend they go or what would you recommend to them? Sure. Yep. They can check out my blog, have tons of resources and templates. That's at the SAS CFO. So T-H-E-S-A-A-S-C-F-O.com. Uh, you can reach me there and then download all my resources uh, from my blog. Great. Well, thank you again for your time today, Ben. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Enjoyed it. <laughs>